Jacob chapter 2 addresses two fundamental problems in two separate sections. In the first section, verses 1 through 13, uh, this problem is embodied by the phrase presented in verse 1, respect of persons. The teaching that counteracts this notion or this problem is found in verse 5, where James teaches that God hath chosen those who are rich in faith to be heirs of the kingdom. The second section of James chapter 2 goes from verses 14 to 26. These address a problem where there was a notion, very likely because of Paul's teachings and the way that they were interpreted, because of Paul's efforts to create a separation between the workings of faith and the workings of the Mosaic Law. Uh, it's probably rooted in that problem that there, there became a popular idea that faith uh, without works uh, could still be a living faith. And so we have James uh, addressing that problem and, and the antidote for that problem, the teaching that sets that notion uh, correct, is in verse 18, when he says, I will shew thee my faith by my works. So in saying that, he's showing us that there is an inextricable connection between true faith and the works that follow. That's what makes faith living and what makes your discipleship a living thing just as when a body and a spirit are combined then that is a living soul well those are the two sections then of James chapter 2 let's go into some depth with both of these starting in verse 1 it reads as follows my brethren have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect of persons. Well, this is a hard sentence uh, when you encounter it in this way. It helps to do a couple things. One of those could be to take the phrase respect of persons and put it earlier in the sentence so that it reads like this. My brethren, those who have respect of persons have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ. So that's the meaning of the sentence, actually, is that the respect of persons precludes one from having a true faith of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Joseph Smith translation of this makes it far more clear. It says, My brethren, ye cannot have faith. Oh, my brethren, ye cannot have the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, and yet have respect to persons. So this phrase, respect of persons, bears some investigation. Paul tells the Romans in chapter 2, verse 11, that there is no respect of persons with God. So he teaches us that very important truth about God's disposition to all of his children. 
Nephi taught with respect to God's respective persons. Uh, in 2 Nephi chapter 26, verse 33, that God, quote, doeth nothing, save it be plain unto the children of men. And he inviteth them all to come unto him and partake of his goodness. And he denieth none that come unto him, black and white, bond and free, male and female. And he remembereth the heathen. And all are alike unto God, both Jew and Gentile. Yet another way of saying that God is not a respecter of persons. So it follows, as we read verse 1, that we can't be respecters of persons. James then goes on and talks especially about riches. And I want to read those verses. Verse 2 says, For if there come unto your assembly a man with a gold ring in goodly apparel, and there come in also a poor man in vile raiment, so imagine sitting in church and having both of these characters approach you. And consider what your disposition would be towards them. And, verse 3 says, Ye have respect to him that weareth the gay clothing, and say unto him, Sit thou here in a good place, and say to the poor, Stand thou there, or sit here under my footstool. James says, If you've done this, are ye not then partial in yourselves, and are become judges of evil thoughts? Verse 5, Hearken, my beloved brethren, hath not God chosen the poor of this world rich in faith? and heirs of the kingdom which he hath promised to them that love him. And so that is the common denominator among those who are heirs of the kingdom. It's if they're rich in faith. And of course, in the second section of this chapter, we'll learn more about what it means to be rich in faith, both from what James says and from some commentary. Then he says, But ye have despised the poor. Well, that's quite an indictment. And um, the, the Savior's teachings were consistent with this as well, that you don't want to be accused of that. Um, Alma uh, said something very similar. I want to go to that briefly. He addressed a group of Zoramite people who were expelled from their land uh, precisely because of their lack of riches. And here's what he says about this. And actually, this is a quote of the people who came to him. I should clarify that. So this is Alma chapter 32, verses 4 through 5. Now, as Alma was teaching and speaking unto the people upon the hill Oneida, there came a great multitude unto him, who were those of whom we have been speaking, of whom were poor in heart because of their poverty as to the things of the world. And they came unto Alma, and the one who was the foremost among them said unto him, Behold, what shall these my brethren do? For they are despised of all church, uh, they are despised of all men because of their poverty. Yea, and more especially by our priests, for they have cast us out of our synagogues, which we have labored abundantly to build with our own hands. And they have cast us out because of our exceeding poverty. And we have no place to worship our God, and behold, what shall we do? So here's an instance in which the poor were despised, as it says in verse 6. Then James says uh, that this is a form of blaspheming the worthy name by which you are called in verse 7. Then uses this phrase, the royal law, in verse 8. If ye fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, quote, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, unquote. 
That's a quote from Leviticus, Leviticus 19, verse 18. He says, you do well. But, in verse 9, if ye have respect to persons, ye commit sin and are convinced of the law as transgressors. And uh, maybe convinced could be rendered as convicted there. I, I didn't check that. Verse 10, for whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. It might be helpful to interject the word this before one point. For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in this one point, he's guilty of all. And then James uses the example of two extreme uh, cases of sin uh, that also come from this, uh, uh, that, that come from the, the from the law, just as this um, statement from verse eight, verse eight, uh, where he says in verse eleven, "For he that said, Do not commit adultery, said also, Do not kill. Now, if thou commit no adultery, yet if thou kill, thou art become a transgressor of the law." So he ends this passage by saying. He shall have judgment without mercy that hath showed no mercy. Um, that calls to mind the, the parable of the unmerciful master who, after being forgiven a heavy debt um, of 10,000 talents, was then not merciful to his subordinate who owed him. And to read that phrase again, he shall have judgment without mercy that hath shewed no mercy. When we really consider our own standing uh, as to justice, uh, this verse should make us shake uh, because only the most deluded or the most deceived would ever believe that they are free of sin and that they could somehow be justified before God without the workings of mercy. So this is what James is saying. There are some other beautiful scriptures in the Book of Mormon that uh, talk about the Lord not being a respecter of persons in, in different ways. Uh, Jacob uh, makes reference to it. Um, and we have this statement by Gordon B. Hinckley. We must never forget that we live in a world of great diversity. The people of the earth are all our father's children and are of many and varied religious persuasions. We must cultivate tolerance and appreciation and respect one another. We have differences of doctrine. This need not bring about animosity or any other kind of holier-than-thou attitude. Well, that's a more general statement having to do with um, our, our tendency to show respect for persons or to differentiate between groups of people based upon income or gender or race or any other uh, number of identifiers that, um, that can show up. Uh, all of those run counter to the idea in the Book of Mormon that uh, there were no ites of any kind and that that was, a, that was a wonderful episode when that was true. There's an additional point I'd like to add on to this before moving to the next section, which I find so interesting. When Alma is approached by these people, who say, what shall we do? Uh, they've cast us out because of our exceeding poverty. We have no place to worship our God. The first thing we learn about this is that uh, it is wrong that they were treated in this way, that these people were cast out 
because they were poor. They, however, are also given a responsibility, those who are poor. Um, Alma goes on to teach them about faith and about prayer. And he says something, uh, no pun intended, very compelling uh, in the teens of, of Alma 31. I think it's in uh, verses, roughly verses 14 through 16, where Alma says, I'm glad that you have become humble, but it is because you were compelled to be humble. And it would have been better if you would have been humble without these circumstances uh, bringing you to that point. Then in the following chapter, he again um, tells them that they are responsible for their, their own worship, um, teaching them that worshiping God in synagogues only and only on, on one day a week uh, was not adequate. And, and, that, and then he quotes the ancient prophet Zenos and says that, you know, you, you could have prayed in your homes this whole time. So I, I bring that out because I think it's, <clears throat> it's helpful and interesting to find that um, this is not about choosing the right group between rich and poor or any other group that is differentiated. This is about the salvation of the individual. And I think the key is in verse 5, being rich in faith is the common denominator among those who are poor or those who are rich or those with any other number of, uh, of differentiators. It is about the uh, relationship between the individual and God. When we uh, move into this next section now, and again, this is verses 14 to the end, so 14 through 26, we're going to talk about the relationship between faith and works. First James teaches us about this concept in the abstract and then uses uh, Abraham and Rahab, interestingly, as examples of those who did um, wrought works, as he says. For example, in verse 22, he says, Seest thou how faith wrought with his works? And by works was faith made perfect. And he's referring there to Abraham, and then in later verses about Rahab, the, the harlot that lived in Jericho. So we'll come back to that, but let's just progress through these verses. Verse 14, What doth it profit, my brethren, Though a man say he hath faith and hath not, have not works, can faith save him? So we're differentiating here between faith and between works. To go to just a little bit of commentary to, to help understand this, um, uh, as I mentioned earlier, it, it really could be that the Apostle Paul's teachings, once they had been disseminated to the saints, were being distorted. And there's no doubt that they would have been circulated orally, uh, People didn't have the advantages that they would later have and that we have today of having the message perfectly standardized because you can refer to the written word. And so it was circulated orally. And, and a problem that stemmed from that is that Paul most certainly had emphasized that salvation came through faith in Jesus Christ. And as I mentioned earlier, not through the law of Moses or the ceremonial per performances or works of the law of Moses. And so it, it could be that that was misinterpreted by the saints, and James needed to, to, to fix this problem. And, and, and really, his basic point is this. Um, 
James is using the terms the term works in a different manner in this epistle. He's not talking about the ordinances or performances of the law of Moses. He's obviously talking about caring for the poor, which we'll read even more of in a moment. So he's he's talking about something slightly different than Paul. And he's saying very clearly that uh, righteous deeds are a natural expression of belief. It's not that you can separate faith and works even if you wanted to, really, because true faith naturally moves in to the types of works that James is talking about. Uh, at one point, then, in, in verse 14 that I just read, it says, Can faith save him? And it turns out that the Greek text of this little phrase has an article before the word faith, uh, so that it, it could be read it could be read as in this way: Can that kind of faith save him? So James wasn't teaching that faith doesn't have any saving power, and that's an important point to take from this. Faith in and of itself most certainly does have a saving power, and as Paul expressed, as differentiated from the works of the old law, faith does indeed have saving power. Uh, but James is teaching that a passive belief, and, and we can tell that especially from verse 19 when he talks about the belief that even the devils have, a uh, passive belief that resulted in no action was not a true saving faith. Uh, so that's why he says later, shew me thy faith without any works in verse 18. And he's really pointing out here then that it's, it's not even possible uh, to show one's faith except through one's actions. Okay, so true faith really cannot exist apart from righteous works any more than a living body can have uh, separation of spirit and, and body. So with that understanding, let's now move through these verses so that we can have a kind of a correct lens through which to view them. We talk in verses 15 and 16 about caring for the poor once again. And so these, first of all, are the types of works that James is referring to when he differentiates. And says, if a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, and be ye warmed and filled, notwithstanding you give them not those things which are needful to the body, what doth it profit? So that's quite an image. Um, it's kind of a striking image to imagine someone who says, depart in peace, but then doesn't um, actually administer to their temporal needs. We know as members of the Restored Church that Brigham Young had uh, many thoughts and feelings about the practical application of religion in this sense. He must have been a kindred spirit to James in some way, uh, since in the previous chapter of James, of course, James talks about this concept of true religion, which is such a loaded phrase. It would suggest that James was witness to untrue religion and defiled religion, wouldn't it, if he talked about pure or true religion, undefiled. Uh, I, I like uh, Amulek's statement very much in Alma chapter 24, and it, it has a very similar spirit to these verses in 15 and 16. This is Alma 34, 28, and Amulek says, I say unto you, do not suppose that this is all. For after ye have done these things, and these, these things are, 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 have to do with how to pray. He says, if ye turn away the needy and the naked, 
and visit not the sick and the afflicted, and impart of your substance if ye have, to those who stand in need, I say unto you, if ye do not any of these things, behold, your prayer is vain, and availeth you nothing, and ye are as hypocrites who do deny the faith. Well, that's really well said. And now uh, James comes to a central point, addressing the central problem in verse 17, when he says, Even so faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. Yea, a man shall say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Shew me thy faith without thy works, and I will shew thee my faith by my works. So there again is what I kind of presented at the beginning of this as his solution or his central teaching, that you show your faith by your works, that those two things cannot be separated. Uh, in verse 18, uh, it, where it says, a man, I'm going to come back to that because at, at the end of this segment, I want to talk about a broader application for this concept. Uh, clearly, James is talking about individual discipleship and matters of individual discipleship. But I'll come back in a few minutes and, and talk about how the, the combination of faith and works in the way that James is outlining them is most certainly an indication of a true and living church as well. Now moving on to verse 19, I remember the first time I heard this verse and learned of this verse. It was in Australia uh, when I was serving my mission and it was so striking to me uh, Thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well. So good job in, in having a belief. But then, as James says, the devils also believe and tremble. So this suggests that that would be the context where faith and works can be separated. And it would be a painful state indeed to have a belief in this one true God and then to be damned to the point that you could not act on it. That is what would make you a devil. And that is certainly what would make you tremble. Now he goes into an example of Abraham and Rahab. So let's read, um, let's read verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he had offered Isaac his son upon the altar? Seest thou how faith wrought with his works and by works was faith made perfect. And the scripture was fulfilled, which saith, Abraham believed God, and it was imputed unto him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. Ye see then how that by works a man is justified, and not by faith only. So there it is again, there's the thesis. And Abraham is a perfect example of that because of what he did. This is a very interesting example to add to this, to tell the story of Rahab. And she is also referred to in the book of Hebrews in chapter 11. She is a member of the cloud of witnesses that the author of Hebrew puts forward. I think in that segment I mistakenly called her a Moabite. But Rahab lived in Jericho, and Joshua sent spies into Jericho, into, into Jericho to, to um, case the, the area and, 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 and to make sure that they, they could come in and, and conquer Jericho. And Rahab was instrumental in this and actually took these spies in and hid them um, when the king sought for them. And, and uh, these were faithful actions indeed and, and uh, to the point that she and her family were spared uh, when the rest of 
Jericho was destroyed. And, and we also do learn from the book of Joshua that she was a, a member of Israel and a citizen of Israel for the remainder of her life. And it's possible then that uh, she, she would have been fully converted to the gospel. If she's going to be used as an example of righteousness and of the combination of faith and works, in verse 25, it's likely that she that she was just that, that she was fully converted and uh, was, was a, a wonderful example of faith. And then verse 26 really hits this point home by saying that for as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. This is a good time to point out the definition of faith in the lectures on faith as a principle of power. Um, it says faith is not only the principle of action, but of power also in all intelligent beings, whether in heaven or on earth. Uh, there, there are a couple comments on this statement that I think are interesting, and one of them is very recent from a, a talk by Elder Renlund in General Conference where he uh, uses the analogy of a, of a match being struck and also kindling and, and a fire and oxygen and the, the role of these actuating um, events that allow uh, power uh, to come. And he talks about faith being a principle of power in that context. And here's something from Elder Bednar uh, where he says, thus faith in Christ leads to righteous action, which increases our spiritual capacity and power. Understanding that faith is a principle of action and of power inspires us to exercise our moral agency in compliance with gospel truth, invites the redeeming and strengthening powers of the Savior's atonement into our lives, and enlarges the power within us, whereby we are agents unto ourselves. So Elder Renland and Elder Bednar are both saying that we exercise our agency as an actuating event, and then the power of Jesus Christ can flow into us. President Nelson gave a talk on this recently as well. I think it was before he became the prophet um, when he talked about uh, drawing the power of Jesus Christ into your life. Well, uh, these are the works then that we're talking about in this chapter. Uh, we, we're talking about works more generally as they were wrought by Abraham and by Rahab. And in verses 15 and 16, we're talking about um, our disposition towards the poor. I want to come back to that idea. Uh, we think of this in a personal sense, our disposition towards the poor and our treatment of them. But consider it for a moment in a, in a church-wide sense. Uh, what if you were looking for a church that best resembled your concept of who Jesus Christ was? If you were a student of his life as it's portrayed in the four Gospels and a little bit in Acts as, as the risen Lord. If you're a student of this Jesus of Nazareth who became the Savior of the world and who was the promised Messiah... You, you would have a sense for what his disposition towards the poor was, both by what he said, who he spent time with, and, and even at, at times he fed them. And then, of course, uh, if you have the, the incredible and beautiful advantage of um, 
having the Book of Mormon in your life. And you can read his words in 3 Nephi 17 when he says, Are any, are, are any sick among you? Uh, bring them hither that I may heal them. Uh, that, that's more broad, and that's not about the, the, the poor specifically, but his disposition towards them was remarkably benevolent. Would, would you then not expect his true church, if such a thing does exist on the earth today, a church that contains all of his word and all of his power, would you not expect that church to resemble him? Well, when it comes to um, a church's disposition towards the poor, uh, you, would, you would find that a church is not dead, but has a living faith if its works uh, towards the poor and the dispossessed are like unto those of the Savior. Uh, that then, like a living body where faith and works are combined, I would submit would be a true and living church.